Grab out your Bibles. We're heading to the book of James, chapter 3. And was anyone else a little surprised with the election result? It was not what some of the, uh, the polls and reports had suggested. In fact, my brother-in-law sent me a very excited screenshot message. His name's Matt, and he was watching the election broadcast as we were, and he got his question broadcast on the ABC telecast. So you're not going to believe it? Here's my question. I'm semi-famous in the middle of the election broadcast. Matt from Belconnen, you might have seen it. And he asked this question, can we ever trust an opinion poll again? <laughs> well, that was a good question. But the opinion polls were proven wrong, and we have, of course, Scott Morrison. So we're going to pray for him. We're going to pray for our time in the Word. And then we're going to see what the Lord wants to do. Sound good? Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you for a, I was going to say a new Prime Minister, but certainly voted in newly. And we thank you, Lord, particularly for Scott Morrison and his profession of faith. Thank you that he's not ashamed and being photographed, worshipping you. And we do pray, Lord, that his words and his lifestyle would match up with his profession. Strengthen him, give him boldness to stand for what is right and to be a bold and mighty witness in our nation. Lord, may we not take for granted what it means to have a leader of our country who professes faith in you. We pray, of course, not only for him, but all the elected officials. We pray for this new parliament as it forms, and we ask that righteousness would be exalted in our nation. We thank you that you are on your throne and you are at work accomplishing all of your good purposes and plans. Uh, we say yes and amen to all that you're doing now in this season. And as we approach your scriptures, Lord, speak to us. May your very spirit illuminate these words to our hearts. Open our eyes to see you, Jesus, for the glory of your name. May you be exalted now and may our lives proclaim the greatness of who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're working our way through this wonderful little letter, practical letter, and James is really getting into some of the meat, some of the grit. If there's not a few moments of ugh, just ouch, not a few moments of uncomfortableness as we read this, then we're not reading it right. Because James is going after some issues, and the whole time since the beginning, he's been trying to encourage his readers, people hearing his words, certainly us today, that there is the genuine article. There is a people of faith. And for people of faith, it should look different. The way we think, the way we act, the motivations of our heart. There should be no question about the evidence that's in our lives. How could we possibly encounter the grace of Jesus? to have beheld and experienced and had our lives forgiven and transformed, rescued, redeemed by his mercy and go on living as we did before. And so continually he's talking about these different aspects. We've looked at the way we treat others, the way that we're doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. Adam preached last week about being a people of faith. Faith looks like something. And this morning we're looking at our words. In my 
particular Bible, this section is entitled Taming the Tongue. Taming the tongue. And James has already twice mentioned in this little letter the importance of speech and words. By way of review, chapter 1, verse 19, he says, So then, my beloved brothers, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. If ever there was a generation that needed to hear these words, surely it is ours. May we be swift to hear, slow to speak. We're about to put up that little Facebook post, that little comment. In chapter 1, verse 26, he says, If anyone among you thinks himself to be religious, whilst he doesn't bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart, and this man's religion is worthless. Just another one of his nice, puff-you-up comments. You can see he's building this sense of this is really important. This is of weight. This is something that we must consider if we're truly to grasp what it is that James is saying. So let's read chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Pause there for a moment. Obviously, he's speaking specifically to teachers But there's an application for many of us here, not just in a teaching setting, but in any environment where we are in authority over others. Maybe a workplace situation, maybe parents with their children, etc., etc. He's saying, take note. If any teacher hasn't taken note of these words, then we are in trouble for this reason. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. What's he really saying there? Verse 2, the message puts it this way. I love this. Here's the problem. We get it wrong nearly every time we open our mouths. Do you like that? I like that. And unfortunately, there's a little bit of an amen there at the end for me. That kind of, yeah, there's some truth in that. We're all going to mess up. Just think this through for a moment. Is there anyone, show of hands, is there anybody here who has never said something that they've later regretted? Anybody? Not seeing any hands? Let's take it a step further. Is there anybody here who, at any point in your life, you've never used words just to slightly push your own agenda, to manipulate, to coerce, or worst case, as a a brute weapon of force? Anybody? No. See, we're all in the same boat, aren't we? That's what James is saying. Recognize that we're all prone to stumble in this area to the degree which effectively James is saying here, as the verse suggests, that if you could find someone whose speech was perfectly true, you'd have a perfect person in perfect control of their life. What's he saying there? He's emphasizing this. You can tell so much about a person purely because of their words, purely because of the things that they are saying, the things coming out of their mouths. In fact, as he'll go on, as Jesus himself said, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this is not just an issue with our tongue. It's our tongue that is reflecting what's really going on in our hearts. So I would suggest that there's few more 
powerful and few more important things that are in our possession. In fact, some statistics for you, just in case you're interested, and statistics greatly vary. I don't know how you'd ever measure this, but some studies suggest that we spend between a fifth to a third of our life speaking. A fifth to a third of your life you will spend speaking. Some of you are probably thinking, well, I'm way under average there. Others are probably insulting, insulted that it's not nearly enough words. But we spend a lot of time speaking, communicating. We're made to communicate. In fact, if you put all the words that supposedly all of us are speaking, so the studies would indicate, you would write a 50,000-word novel per month. So that's 12 novels you'd write a year. You can factor that in as to how many novels you've written in your lifetime. What is it that those words would say about your life? If we can tell who we are because of those words, what are those words reflecting about us? Well, let's go on and find out what James says we should do. So he says, we stumble in many ways and your words will always reflect who you are and what is in your heart. So verse 3. Here's a couple of pictures for us. He says, first of all, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Here's his first point. He says, recognize this in this picture of your words reflecting who you are that your words will have great power to determine and direct the course of your life. Two examples. The first of all is, of course, the bit that sits in a horse's mouth. Now, I don't have much experience with horse riding, but we had one of our little girls last year who began doing some horse riding lessons, and normally it was my wife's duty to take her along to the horse paddock up until, for some reason, she was unavailable, so I had knocked off work early one day and went along to the horse grounds to see my little girl riding horses. And I couldn't get over it. I'm not sure what I was expecting. I think I was thinking little ponies with pretty ribbons, you know, that suit my girls, just kind of being walked around a paddock. But she was there, and these are full, proper-sized horses. She flings her leg over, and they weren't just walking around a paddock. She was doing tricks and activities, and you grab a ball from one area, and you put it in another area. And I was gobsmacked. I mean, she looked tiny on top of this massive beast. I said to her afterwards, I said, Rachie, aren't you scared sitting up there on top of this massive horse? And she's like, no, not at all. I said, why not? Well, you know, I'm in control. I'm in control. I've got the reins. And I can move this horse wherever I need to go, around the obstacles. And as it started the jumping, I think that's the next, the next extension level in a horse riding. But she loves it. Incredible the power of this little bit in a horse's mouth, isn't it? To control and determine its direction. Exactly the same picture he also gives us with a ship and its rudder. What good is a ship? As big as it might be, you could get the greatest size warship, sitting out, floating on the ocean, what good will it be without a rudder? It will be of no use whatsoever. A ship is determined and directed by its 
rudder. See, there is a picture here that James is giving us of the power of our tongue to control and determine our direction. Think of it this way. There is one commonality between every political social revolution, every movement in human history, movement that's been used for great good, you could probably think of some, movements that have been used for great evil, to justify atrocities. What is the one thing that they all have in common? It's possibly a few, but one of the main ones I would say is that they all ride on the backs of rhetoric. Somewhere along the line was a brilliant orator who was able to take a hold of words to control and define and shape the reality purely with the power of words. See, the power of, t- of the tongue is effective to direct our lives and the lives of others into right or into wrong. Maybe let me bring it down this way with a bit of a personal application. You see, there has never once in my life, never once been a moment where I've lost my temper at my kids and have had that lead me to a good place. Never once. I really like where I am now. This is a really pleasant place to be. I've never once got into an argument, which I do love to do at times, might surprise you, just for the pure sake of duking it out for 12 12 rounds in the ring. There's never any winner, but it's just fun in the moment. You know, I've never got to the end of that process and thought, Gee, I feel wonderful now. I feel so good about myself and all the things that I've said. One more. There's never once that I have wallowed in disappointment, and I like to wallow with the best of them. If I'm having a wallow, I mean I like to get down in the mud, in the grit, and really just enjoy it. There's never once that I've wallowed in discouragement, misery, grumbling, and complaining, and got to the, I mean, it feels okay in the moment, but never once have I got to the end and thought, gee, I feel good about myself. Gee, I love where my words have taken me. See, our words take us somewhere, don't they? They define and they direct our lives. Philippians 2, verse 14, Paul says this, Do all things without grumbling, another word for complaining or disputing. Why? that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I love that picture. That's your calling. That's my calling to shine as lights, as the light of Christ in the midst of a darkening world. I hang on to that often. What a What a wonderful call it is. How do we do that? Well, Paul actually begins. He says, it begins with your words. Do all things. How much is that? That's everything. Without grumbling, complaining, or disputing. Our words are going to take us somewhere. Where are your words taking you? They're taking you to good places? Or... Are your words at times your greatest weakness? 
Well, he continues. We're not done yet. So that's the first thing. Words will take us somewhere. Where are we up to? We're up to verse second half of verse 5. He says this, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set amongst our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and, in case that wasn't enough in his description, and set on fire by hell. Wow! James, take it a bit easy. I mean, what, what is he trying to say to us? He's trying to say, you've got to recognize there's a ferocity. There's a power, almost this untamed reality to our tongues and our words. It's not only significant in terms of the direction it takes us, but in terms of the damage it can do. Some of you would remember Round about, probably a little bit later in the year than this, last year, we invited the whole church over to our house for a bonfire. And I've been planning for some time, and I had this mountain of wood there. And I'd set up what I thought was a safe distance, some nice pallet chairs. Now, we were about to light this bonfire. I had a friend from down the road come, and as you know, when it's all dry, it only takes a little spark. And fortunately, someone in their wisdom took a look at where my pallet seats were, and all the lovely little children that were sitting upon them, waiting for uh, toasting marshmallows moments or something, and said, look, I think we better move the kids a step further away. So we did, we moved them, and sure enough, it took moments. If you were there, you would have seen it. It just went up. And there wasn't a lot of wind, but there was enough wind that it was licking at the pallet seats. So I, of course, grabbed the hose in an effort to save my pallet seats, which were somewhat scarred. But the important thing, of course, is we saved the children. <laughs> we, we nearly had more than just toasted marshmallows. But you could not stand, it's not even a wildfire, it's just a bonfire in the backyard, and not be aware and overcome just by the raw power of it. Just thinking it, it doesn't take much, does it, for a spark or a small flame to inflict huge damage. In fact, James goes as far as to say, and, and this phrase is fascinating, and set on fire by hell. You know, I believe that this is not just a figure of speech, that the enemy loves nothing more than to grab a hold of our words and our tongues. He knows the damage it can inflict. Of course, we see one example in Matthew 16, where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's told them, well, I'm going to the cross and, and this is what's going to happen I'm going to be giving up my life, and, but don't worry, I'll rise again. And Peter grabs that moment and rebukes him. He says, no, you're not going to do this. And it says in the account that Jesus looks at him. I imagine him looking at him right in the eyes, and he doesn't even rebuke Peter. He says what? Get behind me, Satan. You see, he recognized that this was really the power of hell and of Satan himself that had grabbed a hold of Peter's words in the proclamation that he had just made. See, there's nothing more that the enemy loves to do than to borrow our tongues. James is saying, you've got to be so careful because it's almost like the enemy is there waiting. He knows that just a spark and there can be maximum damage, just a, a Facebook post, just a, a comment, just that little biting remark, and you watch what the enemy can do with that. And before you know it, it's a blazing inferno with people left in its wake. 
You see, there are few things more powerful that can either transform a marriage or tear it apart. There's few things more radical that can define a community or a church or destroy it. There's few things that have such a great capacity to set the world on fire for the glory of God or to reap mass destruction and leave people in its wake. So James is saying, be aware. This is going to direct your lives, but all it takes sometimes is just a spark. And it's going to reap a harvest, not for God, but for the enemy. Let's move on. Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile seeing creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You can almost hear just this, this remorse in James's words. He's like, how is it that we can tame these wild beasts? We've got bears under control. We've got lions, you name it. Why is it that we cannot seem to control and tame our tongues? We've got this propensity, haven't we? Let's be honest. We've all said we're in the same boat here just to use our tongue and cause so much damage. Verse 9. And now he's really getting to the crux of, I think, what is giving him this urgency to address this issue. He says, for with it, for with the tongue, for with our words, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. See, this is what he's saying. We've been given this gift, the gift of words, the gift of our speech, the gift of communication. It is a God-given gift, but it's been given to us to glorify God, to praise his name, to proclaim the kingdom, to, to, to be used for so many wonderful things. And he's saying, how is it that something that was given to bless God for such a good purpose can be used so negatively? And sometimes he's almost addressing the hypocrisy here of those moments where in one moment we're blessing God and then in the next moment, we're using our tongue, just maybe for that little word of gossip. We've lost it at the kids again. We're going for it in the back room, husband and wife, whatever the example might be. He says, this ought not to be so. This ought not to be so. Heard of this great example recently in our home group, actually, we were going through a DVD teaching series by a guy whose name is Jim Simbala. I hope that's how you pronounce his surname. But he's the founding partner, uh, pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle. Probably heard of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. And he's talking actually in the context of prayer. But he had this great analogy, this great example. He said, and, and in this teaching, he was identifying the major blockages to prayer. Why is it that often we don't see answers to prayer? And he's saying often because there's, there's issues in our hearts. And there was this one Sunday morning, he said, I was standing there in worship, just thinking through how the morning had played out. And I'm sure this doesn't apply to anybody here. But he said, it was one of those mornings, the stress level, the tension level was high in the house. And my wife and I, I mean, there'd been tension from word go. But then we hopped in the car 
to head to church, and it was on. <laughs> no one, of course, has ever had that moment here, I'm sure, on a Sunday morning, getting to church. He said, we just had it out in the car. Don't even know what it was about, but he said, I hopped out. I was so frustrated. I slammed the door, went into church to worship God. And he said, it was the end of the worship time, and I'm getting there ready to and I'd take the stage and to pray and do what I need to do. And he said, just as I was going to do that, and literally he said, it was like God was, was saying it with, with such force. But he said, I physically couldn't move. And I felt God said, don't you dare. Don't you dare get on that stage and use your words to praise my name when you've just used them to cause such great damage to the woman that you've committed your life to. So he's there mid-step, he's like, oh, I don't think I dare take another step. This could be another Ananias and Sapphira moment here, you know. You don't, you don't mess when God is saying something of such great force. So he said he took a few steps back, and in that moment he went straight to his wife. And he confessed, he said, I am so sorry, that was so wrong, I was so out of line, I need to ask for your forgiveness. And she, of course, forgave him, and they wept and prayed together, helped on stage. I don't know what the worship team was going. It was a very long song or something, I think. One more song, one more song. But there's that sense, isn't there? We all have, maybe not that example, but this propensity to be hypocritical in the use of our words. We use them to tear down in the very same breath that we use it at times to praise the God of heaven. So let's move on. I've got some more points there. We'll have to save them for another week. We're running out of time. So what James is saying here is he's saying you cannot have it both ways. We'll read on. Verse 11. Does a spring pour forth from the same openings, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. He's saying we cannot have it two ways. You cannot, in the same breath, bless and curse. They're mutually exclusive. We're doing one or we're doing another. And you know, it's interesting that some commentators, they examine this passage and they kind of feel like we got a bit cheated there at the end. Like James didn't really go on to kind of explain, well, how, how does it work? How do we do it? It's almost left a bit open-ended. Well, I think James really has, and he brings it down in this way. He identifies what I believe is the fundamental issue. He says, here's the problem. Can a fig tree bear olives? Of course, we'd say no. If you have a fig tree, there is no physical way that olives can ever be grown on a fig tree. He says, in the same way, can a grapevine produce figs? Well, maybe with you know, creative grafting and someone will come and say it is possible. But the essence of the principle is, there's no way that the tree can bear anything different than its source or than its roots. Whatever the source is will determine the supply. James has said very clearly that no man can tame the tongue, but I would say very clearly from this passage that through the power of the Spirit we can change the source. 
And that's where it lands. As Jesus says, from the overflow of our heart, the mouth speaks. What is the source of your heart and your life? Are there sources of bitterness, of brokenness, of judgment, of criticism? That's what I want to ask us as we examine not just our words, but the source that our words come from. And I want to talk very briefly, and literally it will be very briefly, about what does the language then of the redeemed look like? What should it look like? What should be coming out of our mouths? Because it's interesting that if you meet someone from another country, there can often be nothing that is any different about them. They're wearing the same clothes, they've got two arms, two legs, they're a human being, provided they're not from planet Mars or somewhere else. There's nothing distinguishable about them until what? Often. Until they open their mouths. And then it's an instant giveaway, isn't it? Ah, you're not from around here. I, I hear something different. And you see, I think it's exactly the same as what James is saying. It should be so obvious. The moment you open your mouth, what is coming out? What should be coming out? Number one, words of life. This is what Jesus said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Are they words of life or are they words of death? Life. This is a message of life. It should be words of redemption. The entire purpose of God was to come and redeem and rescue and restore, to give up his life for us who were so undeserving. Words of hope, if anybody should be bringing with hope, surely it is us, overflowing with hope. Words of forgiveness. What a witness it can be. So easy for people to get caught up in all that stuff, hanging on to unforgiveness and bitterness and wrongs. We are called and given an opportunity because we have been forgiven to extend that forgiveness to others. It's not just an invitation. It's a command. That's another message. Words that build up, not tear down. You know, the reality is we could get anybody here. I'm not going to do it, don't worry. We could call anybody out, including myself, stand them up the front and spend who knows how much time hurling insults and criticisms and words that tear them down. We could. Every single one of us, because we all have faults. You know, if we want to be critics... I've discovered there's a never-ending pile of stones. There's a never-ending supply. But what does that help? It ought not to be so, James says. Our words can tear down or they can build up. Ephesians 4 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't we want to be that sort of people? I want to be that sort of person. 
I want to be that sort of father with my children. I want to be that sort of witness in the world, not sitting there with rocks to tear down, but recognizing that my words are going to determine my direction, that they have power for good or for evil, and that they have the capacity to build up and to bring life and to bring hope. And let me leave you then with this encouragement from the Psalms. It says, Psalm 19, 14. The psalmist says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Would you close your eyes? Just as we bring this service to a conclusion, if there's someone who can come and play, that would be great. But I want to ask us just two questions before we go. I know we're running out of time, but this is important. Always important as we hear the word of God proclaimed for us to give the Lord a moment and to simply ask him, God, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me? So just with your eyes closed, with your attention upon him. First of all, I want to ask you, are there any people, any circumstances, any situations that as you sit before the Lord now, as you allow him to just Reveal what's in your heart. Any moments where you know you have used words, whether intentionally or accidentally, that have caused hurt, woundedness, pain. Might even be just a little comment that you know, really, hell has got a hold of that and is causing great damage. The good news is there's an opportunity this morning for us to bring those things to the Lord. To first of all confess them to Him. And then if you can, if opportunity arises, to ask for forgiveness. The last thing we want to be is that kind of hypocrite. As Pastor Jim so boldly shared, we're in the same breath. We're praising God as we're tearing someone down with us. Is there anyone that you know you need to ask forgiveness for? You need to just repent of how your words have been used. The second question that I want to encourage all of us in the positive is, how is it that we can be a people who grab a hold of the language of the redeemed for our words to be full of life and hope and forgiveness and mercy What circumstances, what can we change in the way that we deal with our children, in the way that we talk to our spouse, the way that we relate to friends, in our workplace, whatever setting it is? How is it that our words, the words of our mouth, can become acceptable in the sight? So let me pray for us. You can do business with the Lord there. If you want prayer this morning, of course, this is a great theme that if you need it, if God's showing you some things, it really is good and it's important to respond in that way, to come forward. Ask someone to pray for you. Confess what needs to be confessed. Leave it here at the foot of the cross and commit to be a people 
whose lips, whose tongues, whose words bring glory to the King of glory. So, Father, here we are, and I do just pray that even in this moment, we want to give you opportunity to speak to our hearts. And if there are things, as the psalmist prayed, that are not acceptable in our lives to do with the words of our mouth, then I pray that you would show us. Give us the courage to confess where we need to confess. And I pray, Lord, from this moment forward, there would be a bold conviction to use our words in a way that brings honor to you, in a way that builds people up, in a way that brings life and redemption and hope and healing. And I pray that in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. So prayer team, if you'd like to come forward, as I said, if you need prayer this morning, doesn't have to be in this area, anything else, then there is a team of people who'd love to pray for you about any and every prayer need you have. But don't go, don't leave until you know that you've done business with God. That's what we're here to do. Bless you this week. Look forward to seeing you next week. Amen.